So I wanted to read something. This is actually a story that I actually skipped over a while back. Um, it just didn't feel appropriate then. It feels appropriate now. And it's, it's not a huge story from Mark. Um, but it is a really important one. And as I've read about it and thought about it and kind of let it marinate, uh, it really has kind of sunk home personally, uh, even in reflection of the, my, my, my experience at camp this last couple weeks. But I just want to read this. It's coming from Mark 10, chapter uh, 29. You can go there if you want to as well. Jesus said, Mark my words. No one who sacrifices house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, land, whatever, because of me and the message will lose out. They'll get it all back. But multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, but also in troubles, and then the bonus of eternal life. This is once again the great reversal. Many who are first will end up last, and the last first. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning as a, as a family, uh, collected in your story as a part of your ongoing narrative uh, through history. We thank you for all the people who are here, who are not here, those prayer requests that we've heard, uh, the illnesses that are floating around, the injuries, even self-caused. Um, we pray that you just be uh, the, the healing balm, the, the glue that holds us together. Uh, we thank you for uh, where we are and where we're going. Uh, in your name, amen. So this story is a small story, and it's actually the end of kind of a series of mini stories that kind of Mark kind of dives into. In the beginning of Mark, it's very, very action-oriented. It's very fast-paced. There's lots of big things that happen. But there's not a lot of teaching. There's not a lot of conversation. So you don't hear a lot of Jesus um, talking about the things that he's doing. He's just doing stuff. And as Mark goes along, when you, when you approach the Gospels, or you approach a book in particular as a singular story, and that's sometimes hard for us to do because we've grown up with traditions that kind of we see the whole Bible as one kind of text that we can kind of pick verses out of, pick stories out of, and kind of mash them up into this like, uh, like blendified version of the scriptures, when we actually slow down and we really take in account each kind of subtle shift in cue, in particular the, the book of Mark, we see something different happening. We're exposed to a new kind of uh, paradigm. We see it playing out a little bit different. And so after Mark kind of picks up all these big, fast action stories of feedings and healings and kind of resurrections and this like enormity of this stuff, the transfiguration is that pivotal moment where Jesus turns and his, his journey of big stuff begins to kind of shift. And he, he really starts, he's heading towards Jerusalem. And he's heading towards Jerusalem to die, which he says multiple times. Along the way, he's healing, but then you get a lot of his teaching. You get a lot of his, um, like, explanations and kind of grand, grand detail. And so this story is actually the end of a few stories that Jesus talks about, a few times that he teaches. And it kind of starts with the, the, the disciples kind of arguing who's, who's the best among them, who's going to be the greatest. You know, a bunch of, like, laymen basically arguing who is the best person uh, amongst the 12. And Jesus says, you know what? 
the best actually are the last. If you want to be the best, you have to be a servant of all. He explains this kind of servanthood. The kingdom of God is actually about being a servant. And then the story, one of my favorites, is when the children come to Jesus. And so if you actually want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you have to become like a child. You have to enter the, the kingdom through the eyes of a child, through the experience of slimy kids. And then this story happens that after he leaves that scene, so if we kind of left that scene where all these kids are kind of mulling about, tugging on Jesus' robe and the disciples kind of being put in their place, he stands up and he starts to walk away when another man runs at him. And this man, he would have been in the area, Jesus would have been around Perea, kind of on the other side of, of the Jordan River, and he's heading towards Jerusalem. The next stop will be Jericho. So he's kind of heading south. And he's going to take that, that road up to Jerusalem for Passover with all those pilgrims. But here he's in Perea, and this man runs up to him. And right away you can see that this man is different than most of the other men around. He's younger. He is wealthy. You can tell by the clothes that he's wearing. I can imagine him wearing like kind of rich colored clothing. Maybe he's got some chains around his neck and some gold in, you know, in his head covering. And he's a wealthy man which means he's probably a landowner, which means he probably has servants working under him, which means he probably has a lot of power and a lot of influence along with his wealth. He's not just rich, he's a really prominent person in the community. And because Jesus has been, been along this journey and teaching and healing along the way, he's heard Jesus. He knows of Jesus. And he sees Jesus moving away, and he's like, he runs to him. He says, good teacher good teacher and he asks this really really insightful question he's like what must i do to inherit eternal life how do i have eternal life now for us as 21st century christians or people who are familiar with this idea of eternal life not all jews believed in eternal life the way we do but this man believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed in life after death. He believed that if when we die, we go on to live with God. How do I get that? That's a really important question. Really important question to kind of hang your hat on. And so Jesus, he confronts him. He says, why are you calling me good? This is where Mark and Jesus are so, like, buckle up for like a pretzeling kind of paradoxical almost nonsensical explanation. It is so hard to get your head around. Why are you calling me good, Jesus says. No one is good, only God. That's fascinating. And then he says, you know the commandments. Now this is actually not so much the Mosaic commandments, this is the Decalogue. This is the commandments that were floating around, kind of um, how you would treat other people commandments. So they're not all ten are listed there. So that's important. Jesus says, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. And the man says, teacher, I have from my youth kept them all. This man is not a Pharisee. He's not judgmental. He's not full of himself. He's not prideful. He's not pious. He's actually kept all the commandments. Now think of that in those days. A wealthy landowner who's in charge of a lot of people he could have all kinds of opportunities to extort, to bribe, to mistreat, to mispay. He could be greedy. He, ha he is a man of power and prestige, and yet he says, Jesus, I've kept 
all the commandments that I'm supposed to keep. Great, I've done it. Which probably also means he's given alms. He's shared his wealth. He's donated to the temple. He's donated to the poor in his, in his community. He is a great citizen. He's a God-loving citizen. But Jesus says, he looked him right hard in the eye and he loved him. This is fascinating. It's one of the only times we hear this kind of language uh, from Mark about someone else. He doesn't just look him in the face and, or acknowledge him. He actually looks him in the face with love. Just imagine Jesus looking at you with love. And he says, yes, there's just one thing left, Jesus says. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth then will be heavenly wealth and come follow me. The man's face clouded over. This is the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on to a lot of things and not about to let go. This, I'm sure maybe some of you have heard this story before. It's a very popular story. And it's, and it's this kind of sets up this dichotomy of wealth and the kingdom. But remember the question that the man asked, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I have eternal life? Jesus makes it very clear, follow me. No one is good but God. I am God. You want God, you want his kingdom, now and then, now in the afterlife. Follow me. Don't hold on to your wealth. Don't think that your almsgiving is the, is the way in. Don't think that the keeping the commandments is the way in. Being a good citizen is the way in. Follow me to have eternal life. Oh, but there's something in the way of you following me. It's your stuff. It's your money. It's your house. It's your land. And the man who says, oh, but I've done everything that I should do, and I've done it well. Jesus ratifies him and says, yes, you've done that well. You are a good person. You're a good citizen. You're a good Jew. You're not only just a law-abiding Jew, you're a good Jew. You've done everything you're supposed to do and more. You've done it with the right heart. You've kept the commandments of God. But that's not kingdom. If you want God, Follow me. And the man, I, just his face, when Mark says his face goes down, Mark doesn't waste words. This is the ancient, ancient times. He's not wasting quill, pen, and ink on paper. He doesn't have that to waste. He means it literally. The man's face drops. Oh, really? Sell everything that I have? give it to the poor? Who would I be? What would, what would be my identity if I'm not the landowner in Perea with servants and land and money and power? Who would I be? 
If I don't have the money to hold on to in my pocket that's secure, that's probably generational. Like it's coming from my family and my parents, like my father. Who, who would I be? I, I can't do that. And the man slowly walks home. Now, when you infer or do a little conjecture, as I often do, what would that walk home be like for that guy? How then would he think about Jesus? When he goes home, how then does he think about his teachings, about his healings? In the span of maybe, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks, this same rabbi is going to be dead on a cross. How then does the man think about Jesus? Does he feel justified? Does he feel, well, he had that coming? What is, what's the status of his heart after that encounter with Christ? So then, it's, it's quite confounding. Jesus, again, the, the, if it, the story is complex enough, but it doesn't stop there. Then Jesus initiates a converse, conversation with his disciples. He says, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? And the disciples couldn't believe what they're hearing, but Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult it is. So Jesus says, you know what, the people who have it all, the people who are comfortable, who have the money, who have the power, who have the stability, do you know how hard it is for those people to get in the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you can't even imagine how hard it is. Here, I'll give you a metaphor. I'll give you a sample, an image. This is a big, giant camel, the largest land animal in, this, in the region. It'd be easier for that camel to squeeze through the tiniest little hole in a needle pin. It's easier for that camel to whoop, somehow, like slime, squish through that needle pin. Now, there's some floating out there that, that um, I read this in the commentary, that, and I have heard this, where there's this idea of the, the needle's eye and the gate and the city wall and the camel. If it takes off all of its stuff, it can kind of shimmy through this gate in the hole of some wall of a city. Who's ever heard that before? Yeah. I, think, I don't think it's true. So the one commentary is like, there's no such, no one's ever found a gate that's called the needle's eye. That's an easy way to discount what Jesus is constantly doing, which is making these paradoxical statements that make no sense in this grandiose way that paints this image that are just like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus, that's impossible. It just doesn't line up with Mark. Mark is a big, grand storyteller because he's repeating the words of Jesus. And Jesus is using this, lit, like, this image on purpose. It's impossible, folks. Jesus says, for rich people, not just rich people, People who don't want to let go of themselves to squeeze through the kingdom of God like this camel through this needle. Well, after, as you may be feeling, as I often feel, Peter, it's often Peter, he's like, what are you talking about? He just finally snaps. The disciples are kind of like mulling this around. They can't, they can't believe what they've seen. They can't believe this interaction they've had because in their mind, this rich landowner He's done something right. He's been blessed by God to have wealth, and he's a good person. Not only is he blessed by God because he's wealthy, because that's often how things flow in our minds, he's actually a good guy. And you just send him away. And now Jesus initiates this impossible standard that basically nobody can, can meet. 
And Peter's probably thinking about his own fishing boat and his own house in Capernaum that Jesus actually lived in for a time. Jesus, what are you talking about? How does anybody make it in? It's like, and Jesus, oh, Jesus was blunt. No chance at all. If you think you can pull it off by yourself, every chance in the world if you let God do it. Then, then Peter, he's like he's relentless, right? Like only Peter. Who knows a guy like Peter? Like just argumentative, you know? Like, well, that's me. You know me. That's kind of how I am. He tries another angle. Jesus, and I can I can hear in his voice like a little bit of like disdain, a little bit of anger, a little bit of frustration, maybe on the on the cusp of like like you're about to cry, like you got that, like the, the weeps are about to come on to you because you're just so frustrated and confounded. So Jesus, we left everything to follow you. We left it all to follow. If this guy can't, and you're saying these people can't, what about like, we've already, I thought we did this. We left everything, and they did. Way, way back in early Mark, when Jesus is standing on the shore, and he calls out to Peter, who's fishing. Peter, with very little knowledge of who Jesus was, with just a whisper of an idea of who Jesus was, he heard that call in the pit of his stomach, and he literally dropped his nets. He dropped his livelihood, his security, his identity. He dropped his family values, his maybe 100 years old tradition of his, of his heritage. He dropped it to follow Jesus. When, Je when Peter says, I've left everything to do this, he did. Then Jesus says, mark my words. No one who sacrifices house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, land, whatever, because of me and the message will lose out. They'll get it all back, Jesus says, but multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, but also in troubles. And then the bonus of eternal life. This is once again the great reversal Many who are first will end up last, and the last first. If you can make sense of this, truly, I applaud you, because I'm, I'm struggling to still make sense of this. And growing up, this, this story was often used as like a, a reason to think of wealth as evil, and maybe that's how you're feeling now, like, when I kind of share this idea with Faith, she was like, oh, that reminds me of all these messages that I've heard growing up about money is bad and don't have money and the only way that you can actually be a true follower of Jesus is if you literally sell everything you have and leave. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not even what I think he asked this rich young man to do. The rich young man was held back by his possessions, by his wealth, by his status, 
and he couldn't let go of that identity to find his identity in Christ because he couldn't physically follow him. And so there's like all kinds of like cross uh, juxtapositions in this story that are just like so rich because Peter says, I did that. I left everything. And Jesus is saying, without saying it, yeah, you did. That's awesome. You did it. You're doing it. And you will find life in spades, Peter. You think you left your small Capernaum behind? Good, like, buckle up, Peter. You have no idea where your life is going to go. You have no idea who the people you're going to meet and see and get and rub shoulders with and the places you'll go. You can't imagine yet what you're going to find. Peter had no concept in that moment in a span of three weeks that his Messiah would die, be resurrected, and he'd, you know, 40 days after that, he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sent out into literally the world where he would birth the church and he would travel the ancient world meeting all kinds of people staying in their houses, eating their food, having family after family after family envelop him in love. And the bonus, Jesus says, is you you touch God, you find eternal life. When I was at camp this week, it wasn't Maple Grove, so I don't know where, it was Camp Mishua, which is near Round Lake, near Pembroke. It's uh, my current denomination, the Evangelical Missionary Church. It used to be their camp, and um, it's no longer their camp. It's just a very small private camp. And we've been going there for 10 years because those two people invited us way, way back, Erica and Jason. And uh, when I worked at Hanford Missionary, and they said, hey, come to this camp. It's really, really cool. And, and so our first year we went, we stayed in this rustic, like literally stick frame cabin filled with dock spiders, and, and it's like... There's one plug and one light bulb. It's very, very rustic. It is like quintessential camp. It's like the, the dining hall is, is very much a dining hall, and there's sailboats and whatever. It's camp. We had never really been to camp, never really been to camp. But we fell in love with this camp. And so we kept going back year after year after year. I've met my best friends at this camp, and now my kids have met their best friends at this camp. As we keep going back year after year after year, even though I'm not really attached to this denomination anymore, I, I love Camp Mishua. I've learned to sail at this camp. I hurt myself at this camp. But this year was the 50th anniversary, the Jubilee year of this camp. I can't even tell you, I don't know their names, I should, who started this camp. This area, I, I, this is like, now it's cottage country. But 50 years ago, this was not cottage country. This is like remote northern Ontario, like two hours away from Ottawa, a thousand years away from where we live. But somebody, some couple, sometime in between the 30s and the 50s decided that they needed to, to, to give up their land to make a camp, a Christian camp for people to come and gather and find Christ. Mishua, I believe, is indigenous for love, I believe. And that's what they called it. I don't think they had any idea 
really, truly, what they were doing. I don't think they had any conception of what would eventually happen. That through their generosity, through their giving away of themselves, they have woven together countless, countless families. Families generationally have come back over and over and over again to meet Jesus, meet community, meet their spouses, raise families, bring those kids back to meet their spouses, to raise families over and over and over again with this exceeding abundant love. And I had the privilege of speaking there second, second week, and I looked out, and this verse jumped out at me, and I was like, I can't afford this camp. I don't have eight point whatever million dollars to buy 35 acres on Round Lake. None of us do. Here we are. Families that have now become family, brothers and sisters in Christ, because someone way back thought that this would be a good idea because they were following Jesus. And when I hear this story, there's tragedy in this story, that this young man had such a profound opportunity to give away what he had to follow Jesus, not because he was asked to give it away, but because he was following Jesus. And the cost of following Jesus was to give away what he had. And I don't think that's a rule for all of us to sell all that we have to follow Jesus. But when Jesus asks us to follow, what keeps us from following? What holds us back? In this story, it's easy to identify his money, his power, his, his position. But for all of us, when we're asked, when Jesus says, come, you want to find life. You want to find new family. You want to find new houses, new land, new vitality. And the bonus of eternal life, follow me. What is he asking us to give up? And if we take that step, if, if this man had done what Jesus asked, where would his life have gone? What are we saying no to? We may be sitting here, some of us about to go on an amazing adventure, who have no idea what's waiting for them. And if we listen and we have courage to follow the good teacher, we will find life now and we'll find life eternally. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for that old couple that decided to donate their land to a camp 60 some odd years ago. I thank you for their, their vision, their seed, their investment, their courage to follow you. I thank you for the folks that decided way, way back, I don't even remember exactly the, how many years ago Blue Mountain Community uh, was, was founded, but probably a very similar story. of Someone who felt the niggling and the, the urge to do something that they obeyed. I thank you, Jesus, that the call into your kingdom is ever going out. That the doors of your kingdom are never closed. That the call to follow has never subsided that you never stop asking us to follow.
then in fact you're waiting for us to take that first step. Jesus, I thank you that you are a good shepherd, that you know our voices, that you know who we are, you know where we need to go. I pray that we would have the courage to heed your call, to hear your voice, to take those steps, and to do whatever we need to do to follow you. And I thank you that not only are we joining a multitudinous amount of people on this journey, sharing these values and sharing in this way of life, but we also get to expect eternal life when we are eventually called to our final home. We thank you for your love. We thank you for this day in your name. Amen.